Blog Talk Radio. Calling all men. It's now your time for your show with your coach, the Men's Advocate Show with Linda Gross. Relax, be heard, and be understood. It's the show where men can be men. Now here's the coach who has your back, Linda Gross. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Men's Advocate Show with me, your host, Linda Gross. I am pleased to tell you about today's show. We're going to be talking about the last time I had anxiety with my guest on today, Brooke Allen. So, does feeling awkward in a situation give you anxiety? Maybe you're going through a breakup or being fired from your job. My, oh, my, those are big elements that definitely contribute to anxiety. And I'm sure you have a host of 10 more, right? So we're going to talk today about what triggers your anxiety and tips that you can implement that will help you push through them. Okay, so let me tell you a little bit about our guest today. Brooke is a writer and a social entrepreneur. His screenwriting project um, that he's currently working on can be found at unoccupy.org. And he graduated with a BA in math from Rutgers and with an MBA in finance from NYU. So his career took him from programming to analysis to trading. He was a hedge fund hedge fund manager for 18 years preceding his retirement a few years ago in 2014. So you can find more information about him on his website brookeallen.com, brookeallen.com, double O, double E, double L. So um, I'll have him spell it later on. Actually, you don't have to worry about the spelling um, because I'm going to post this on all my social media and all you'll have to do to find him is just click on the link and away you go. All right. So his personal mission, he says, is to earn the gratitude of future generations. Welcome, Brooke, to the show. Thanks for being on with us today. <laughs> Hello, Linda. Thanks for having me. Really All right. Juicy topic here. I know a lot of people experience anxiety. They say that 70 million people are in a constant state of anxiety, if you can believe that. I guess that's why the big pharma is so big right now, because such a big portion of the population has this. So we're going to talk today a little bit about what are the triggers to anxiety, and then later on in the show, we'll talk about what you can do to push past this. So what is your take on anxiety? Like, how do you relate that to dating? That's certainly a big one, especially if you're dating somebody, you know, you're going on a first date, or maybe it's the first few dates. You don't know if your relationship is solid or if she's going to ghost you. What's your take on anxiety? <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> I, I, first of all, I have to explain. I'm 69 years old, right? And I haven't been on a date for, well, I've been married 35 years. And the last person I dated was my wife. Yeah. Our first, first date was um, 
on uh, the 27th of July, uh, 2000, I'm sorry, 1984, exactly four uh, years uh, to the day before our first son was born. So I I really, like, ghosting wasn't even a term. A thing, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think what what we had to deal with was called the silent treatment, which sounds like ghosting sounds like an extreme form of that. But I could tell you, you know, um, for me, once I passed puberty, uh, like the biggest uh, uh, source of anxiety for me was just girls, right? <laughs> I mean, just, yeah. just being in the presence of a girl, I'd get tongue-tied. And it took me a long time to figure out why that was. Um, I went to an all-male engineering school my, my uh, uh, freshman year, partially to out of fear of girls. Right. Um, and really interesting, um, if I may tell you about that, the the school was called Rose Polytechnic Institute. It's now called Rose Holman Institute of Technology. And they had a class, um, a series of courses, six of them called Humanities 1 through 6. And the professor began with these words. He said, you are here to become engineers. The role of the engineer is to reinvent the modern world every generation. And that's why it's vitally important you understand what it means to be human. Because although the people in the humanities departments talk a good game, you guys get shit done. And we all have to live in the world that you build. I don't know if that's a good thing, but okay. That's right. And so, like, if you, these are the guys who built the dating apps that you have to deal with. Yeah. These are the guys who built a way of communicating where you can even be ghosted, right? Yeah. So, um, he said, you must watch your beliefs. They're more important than your thoughts because your beliefs are what you act on when you're not thinking, and you're not thinking most of the time. Right. And so our first book was a book called Web of Beliefs, which four pages long. I highly recommend it. Um, I don't think it's in print anymore, but if you look for Web of Beliefs by Quine and Ullian, somebody's put a PDF up online. Mm-hmm. And it's about how to deal with your belief system. And an awful lot of what anxiety comes from is just beliefs that are out of sync with reality. So if you've ever t- taken, been, had, cognitive behavioral therapy or better yet learned how to do it um you understand that uh, that that's at the core of uh cbt is the the mantra is feelings aren't facts um so interestingly our first homework assignment was to read that book and write an essay about why we shouldn't be at college wow wait before you before you hop onto that Topic. I wanted to touch on what you just said because that's a really sure. deep uh, concept. There, beliefs are your beliefs are out of sync with reality. So when you're in it, <laughs> how do you know what the reality is? How do you snap yourself out of it or gain more knowledge or information to do a readjustment? I think when somebody's in that anxiety phase, they don't know to look for reality. Well, I think that, gosh, I mean, that's a really good question. That's a genius question. 
I know. Yeah, you can come but back. Will to you it. allow me to just write down that question? <laughs> yeah, and maybe of that'll be the topic of another show. I haven't. Sure, of course. I mean, I, I, th- I think uh, later on. I mean, we talked a little bit about it later on. Um, there, uh, I, I did find a a trick, and I'll mention that later. That can ad- can that can address that. Okay. But the, uh, um, but I can't summarize for you this entire book, but it's an easy book to read, and it's really about how to attack your belief system. And the professor said you will measure your progress by how many of your beliefs you replace with new beliefs or doubt. You must be comfortable with doubt, right? And so we, we spent time practicing and doing exercises. And so the first um, – assignment was what are the reasons not to be here and when i did the assignment i concluded because i had so much anxiety around girls and yet i like girls you know i wanted to have a girlfriend you know i was interested in sex i could imagine having family someday um my conclusion was I was in the wrong place i shouldn't be around i have to force myself to be around girls right so so that's a that's another common sort of mantra is that you need to face the fear and you need to two ways of overcoming anxiety one is called is gradual exposure and the other is flooding and the, and for me probably the best thing would have been flooding you know get with my name I could have gotten into an all girls school and then see what happens so <clears throat> wait to to give the audience a, a background what what do you mean by flooding oh i'm sorry flooding is where you expose yourself to the thing you're afraid of in the extreme. So gotcha. an example would be if you have fear of heights, you might set, put up a step ladder and then uh, climb up one step one day and then step up two steps and then eventually be able to step up, you know, 10 steps and touch, you know, gotcha. a 20 foot ceiling or whatever. But <clears throat> flooding would be like just getting airplane and skydiving. Just get right. it all over with all at once. So flooding right. is the deep end of the pool. And uh, gradual exposure is walking in from the shallow end, right? And right. so, but th- thanks for for clarifying. So, so that was the first homework assignment, and the second homework assignment was to read the Kama Sutra. Mm-hmm. As the teacher said, you know, this is a class about being human. The Kama Sutra isn't just about sex, right? It's about how people interact with each other. And it's, uh, it's about things like how to have an affair when you're married, <laughs> right? And <laughs> yeah. so it's like, there, it's, it's a, and he says, look, here is a, in, here's this book from another age and another time um, that deals with what it means to be human in the context of that culture and mores and, and society. Mm-hmm. We don't have that for you. And even if we did, we'd get in trouble for imposing something on you. Mm-hmm. So your assignment is to write your own guidebook to how you will behave. So that's another thing that's useful. That's called living a principled life, mm-hmm. where, you've, where you've pre-thought out what you're going to do in certain mm-hmm. circumstances, right. what I call pre-thunk thoughts, right? And so, mm-hmm. so, what you wanted, so what they were teaching – is how to have core beliefs, how to change your belief system, how to be comfortable with doubt, and how to create rules for your own behavior 
on how you will interact with others before you have to. Hmm. Right? I, and I love it, that, it, yeah. Right, and if you do all those things, it's actually, um, it helps so much. And this is all in your engineering class? Yeah, I mean, I went to an engineering school. I can't where believe they they're believe. Like teaching you things, you know, that are that are right brain. That's like really amazing. Right. I well, mean, they didn't teach yeah. us about right brain or left brain or any of that stuff. What they said was, look, <clears throat> there's a book called Engineering is Human, which I yeah. think had come out around that time. It's it. They took an engineering approach to being human, which is like, how do we do this? Whereas in the humanities departments pretty much what you get to do is study the esoteric research interests of your professors. And yeah. there's no overarching attempt at teaching you how to be human. Right? And I love so, that. It's so holistic. <laughs> I'm really kind of pleasantly surprised and shocked. Right. And it's kind of a guy thing too, right? Yeah. And that's, that's probably <laughs> like the guys... thing that guys need most, right? Because most guys, you know, live in their left brain all day long. So... It's it's really amazing. I love this. Well, what I would say about that, okay, so you define terms for me. What do you mean by right brain and left brain? Left brain is what we call the analytical mind, um, ones and zeros, on, off, you know, linear. Those are all skills. Math and science is uh, left brain. And Right, right. And, the, so, and the right brain so is more parallel. The right and brain intuitive is and... the creative side, the emotional side. It's, you know, a lot of artists or recording artists or whatever, you know, they, they're, they, they use their, that side of their brain more often than the other. Right. Now, for, for most engineers, engineering is pretty much left brain, you know, linear. So can they go to their emotional side of course but it doesn't happen naturally i mean most guys that are in that situation they live on the left brain 90 percent of the day so to do that they have to make a conscious decision to go to the other side of the brain so when it comes time to approach the girl or when it comes time to call the girl you have to make a shift you have to get your you know your your head out of whatever the the work project that you're working on get yourself out of that and get more onto um you know the right side of your brain to make that call or to approach the girl okay well yeah. i i think you're making statements about engineers that that may be true on average it's certainly not true of all the engineers i deal with right because the engineers i deal with are extremely creative they're just in a domain that the creative arts don't recognize as creative, right? Okay. And so, uh, like, so the goal is to have those two sides of the brain talk to each other, right? right. And and right. and that linear part of the brain, the part that we're more conscious of, the the part that seems to be in charge of the words that are coming out of my mouth right now, right? It gets those words from some part I'm not aware of hmm. this other part this parallel part mm -hmm. and this parallel part right now that is sort of like channeling the entire history of my experiences to be able to respond to you and so the engineers i know and the artists that i know are I'm, well mostly it's because i've you know learned how to 
uh, be good at this, so I sort of hang with people who are good at it. Both the artists and the engineers were the same. You know, my dad was a sculptor, and he said everything is about everything, and, and it's all about truth and beauty. And and that's the goal. And whether you're a scientist looking for a very elegant solution to, to, to a problem, um, and in science, the uh, Occam's razor is the uh, metric mm-hmm. for uh, truth in a beauty contest, or for beauty in a truth contest, right? And so... Or you're an artist trying to find a way of, with the fewest number of strokes of a pen to express a feeling like love. It's the same thing, right? It, so, um, so I wouldn't say that you have to do this or have to do that. That's sort of like the should statements that uh, right. <laughs> therapists often have uh, try to get people to overcome. But I would say that there's real value in exploring getting good at what you're not good at. Oh, so, definitely. So there are plenty of male artists who are completely intuitive who can't work their way through a logic problem. And those people could stand to learn a little bit of logic. Right? Definitely. <laughs> right? And so I, w- I, w- I would rather... Um, so anyway, so that was my experience my freshman year, and um, the way I overcame my uh, fear of g- girls was I did a lot of uh, hitchhiking, uh, hitchhiked all over the country, and it turns out that sometimes females pick you up and you have to talk to them. <laughs> so I just forced myself into situations where I had to talk to women. and um that. And, and and for hours, right? So like often on a date, how long does a date last? You know, an hour and a half, two hours for dinner or whatever? Yeah. Would you get a ride all the way across the state of Kansas? We're talking like nine hours. And there's nothing else to look at or do either. Usually it's a plain field or whatever, a boring hi- highway. Absolutely. That's right. And you're, And the unwritten contract of hitchhiking is you have to be more interesting than the radio. And since I was a kid, I started when I was 18, I wasn't that interesting. So what I did was I listened to people's stories. And then when I get a ride after, the way to be really interesting to somebody is being interested in them. And they'll think you're fascinating even though they haven't, <laughs> you haven't said anything, right? So right. what would happen is on an eight-hour eight ride across Kansas – so the first three or four hours, you get their life story, and then finally they run out of things to say, and then they ask <laughs> you to say something. And so you tell them stories from the people that have picked up you up before. Right. right. And so, so one of the things I got good at was being able to listen to a person's story, and it's sort of rambling, you know, this happened, then that happened, then the other thing happened, and then find the theme to their life and the narrative arc and where's the inciting incident and so on. And then I could I, I could say at the end, you know, I'm, I, I need I'm, – I'm probably going to – I won't use your name, but I'm going to probably have to explain this. Uh, I'm going to tell this your story to somebody else, so just let me make sure I have it straight. You know, this was the inciting incident. This is the same. This is the purpose to your life, and this is what is likely to happen next. And they would go, oh, my God, you know, I never thought of myself that way. <laughs> Right. Wow. And so 
so that becomes a really interesting way to listen to somebody beyond just um, uh, beyond just you know nodding and making the right facial expressions um, is to look for their the theme you know wow. and and always assume best intentions right. Brooke, I want you to hold that thought. We're going to come back uh, from the break, and we'll continue this hitchhiking thought. I really love this. And while we're at the break, think of a way that we can modernize and use the hitchhiking principle in today's world. I mean, you know, last century, since, since we're both dinosaurs here, you know, hitchhiking was very popular, but that's not what you know, current millennials do. So is there a way to fast forward this and put oneself in that similar kind of situation where you have to talk, you have to interact? Oh, my God, you have to listen. (laughs) So um, anyway, uh, to my listeners out there, if you have just joined us, you're currently listening to the Men's Advocate Show with me, your host, Linda Gross. We are talking today about the last time I had anxiety. You're on with my guest today, Brooke Allen. And I'd like you to call with a comment or question on this topic, 323-642-1677. 323-642-1677, or I can catch you on the chat line right here on blogtalkradio.com, blogtalkradio.com, forward slash DT Linda Gross, forward slash DT Linda Gross. We'll catch you right back after the break. The Men's Advocate Show with Linda Gross. We will be discussing men's issues, dating, relationships, sex, women, fitness, health, business, men's hobbies, men's rights, and more. She will be talking about excerpts from her men's book, Mastering Women, too. Hi, guys. You've heard her on the Men's Advocate Show. Linda Gross wants you to know what turns a woman on and makes her go wild so she just can't help herself. Check out Linda's book, Mastering Women, Real Truth About Women That'll Change Your Life Forever. Linda gives you all the insider tips on how to catch a woman and, if you want, to keep her. In four easy steps, these proven techniques will make women just melt. Ever wonder why the girl you really liked seemed to be great when you met, then all of a sudden just goes cold on you and turns you off? Linda will also let you know what not to do on a date. Never blow it again by losing another hot woman. You don't have to be good looking or even have money. Her book, Mastering Women, is available in paperback and ebook. Men, Linda's on your side. So buy her book, Mastering Women. Buy it for now. And don't keep your women waiting another minute. Get Mastering Women today. You've heard her on the Men's Advocate Show with Linda Gross. How can you help further? From her Facebook fan page of the same name. Hit the Shop Now button and save this link to your favorites. Make all your usual Amazon purchases and some of the revenue will support her show at no additional cost to you. No book purchase required. Just start with this link every time. The Men's Advocate Show with Linda Gross thanks you. Welcome back, everybody. You're currently listening to the Men's Advocate Show with me, your host, Linda Gross. Today, we are talking about the last time I had anxiety. 
does this happen to you? Are there certain triggers in life that put you in a state of anxiety? Would you like to find out how to push yourself through those periods and let it get past you, right? So call in 323-642-1677, All right, we were talking just before we went to break. Um, it used to be really common last century to hitchhike you know everybody was trusting back then (laughs) nobody thought that they were going to get murdered or anything or left in the hills and people would hitchhike as a means from getting from point a to point b and my guest today brooke allen was saying this is a wonderful way to meet girls talk to girls what are you going to do um you know you can't just stare out the window and be quiet for two hours or three hours while you're you're driving in those boring planes so what's a person to do so take it away from there brooke and then also let's try to come up with something that's similar to that a situation that's similar that today's young man maybe the millennial can also force himself to talk to the girl. Good. So let's let's. Uh, thanks for that prompt, by the way. I hadn't thought about how to tie those together, but during the break, I have. So, first of all, um, let me just let me give one example of a hitchhiking experience where I hitchhiked with a girlfriend. You know, I initially I hitchhiked by myself, but then as I would meet girls, they would say, "Hey, I would love to do that. I'm afraid to do it by myself." Right. Mm-hmm. So I'll give one example of something I learned from her. And then I've discovered a, a modern uh, equivalent. So you said that back in those days, people were more trusting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the, the fact is that things were as or more dangerous than, than they are now, right? It's I, think just, it's a per, I think it's a perception thing. Precisely. We perceive things as more dangerous now. Right. Whereas then it was actually. Because on the news, all we hear is bad news, bad news, bad news. You know, this one's getting shot, that one's getting killed. I mean, so we, yeah, it's our perception of the world. That's and correct. Right. It might not be the reality, but it's our perception. And my dad, when I was, um, when I was about five and I was living in Philadelphia, out of, completely out of the blue, my dad said to me, uh, we're just walking through the city, he says, Brooke, one day you're going to have to make a decision, and the decision is going to be your decision. Mm -hmm. You will either decide to trust people until they prove untrustworthy, or you will distrust them until they prove trustworthy. He says, I recommend the former, that you learn to trust people until they prove untrustworthy. Only because you'll have a happier life. But the decision is yours, not for me to dictate. My parents did not believe in stranger danger. They believed that adults must take responsibility for children until they're of the age where they can take responsibility themselves. So I was never told not to talk to a stranger Mm -hmm. because everyone's a stranger until you talk to them. Right. But there was some responsible adult near me at all times until I was about 12 to make sure 
Well, actually, that's not exactly true. I mean, we, 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 we I, I take that back. I take it back because we were allowed to play on, out in the street at, yeah. at five and six and so on. And it wasn't like it was a, a, a much safer place. In fact, we were down the street from a police station and an escaped convict was shot by the police on the front uh, steps of our house attempting to get into our house. And they uh, shot him because they were afraid he was going to try to take us hostage or something. And um, and afterwards, everybody came out in the street to talk about what happened. And then the parents went back in the street and us kids played cops and robbers sort of reenacting what we thought happened, right? And so, you know, my parents had, my mom had sur- escaped Nazi Italy and my dad had fought in World War II and they knew what a world at peace looks like Hmm. right and we were in that world right and 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 there that wasn't a traumatic incident even though as a child i was there for it uh so trauma is really how we react to things anyway so so to get back to hitchhiking hitchhiking was common then but i have friends of mine who are who are younger who who um hitchhike and and they say it's actually much safer and much easier and the reason you don't see hitchhikers on the road is they get picked up immediately Hmm. so it's not like it doesn't happen it's just you think it doesn't happen and who do they get picked up by 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 the way they get picked up from people like me who were given the kindness of strangers and we swore to ourselves we would pay it forward someday. So if, right. if I see a hitchhiker, I'll pick him up. I've only seen one <laughs> in like the last 15 years. Wow. Right? And that's because there are all these people ahead of me, you know, vacuuming them up. And there aren't that many, right, because yeah. people are making assumptions about it. Anyway, so there's this one girl I met. To be honest, she seduced me. And... uh Three days later, she asked, uh, what do you want to do? This is in 1972. And I said, I don't know. I'm thinking about hitchhiking from coast to coast. We had the month of August before school started again. Now, I think she was asking, like, do you want to go to the movies? But uh, she said, okay, let's do that. And so what we did was we spent a day uh, cooking um, granola. And we, we made about 30 pounds of granola, um, lined my backpack, which I still have, with a uh, trash can uh, liner, right. filled it with granola. Because it turns out in those days on the road, joints were the currency of hitchhiking, right? So what you'd do is you'd get picked up by you know a bunch of hippies in a Volkswagen bus, and they'd have the munchies. And you would give them granola and they would give you joints. And then later you could trade those joints for like restaurant meals. <laughs> so even though we didn't smoke, <laughs> yeah. we knew how it worked, right? Yeah. And so then the day after that, we went to Asbury Park in New Jersey and we filled a one-ounce bottle with Atlantic Ocean water because you want to have a mission. If you're going to go do something for a whole month, you want to know why. And so our mission was to take an ounce of the Atlantic, put it in the Pacific, refill the bottle, and put it back in the Atlantic so the two oceans don't get all out of whack. 
good, good logic there. Right. And so now we had a story. People say, what are you doing? And we, we'd hold up this bottle. Well, we're taking this and we're putting it in the Pacific. <laughs> or on the way back, we're putting this in the Atlantic. <laughs> right? So, so, so that was a re- so there's still like a really good icebreaker, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, so, we're, so here's a story that some people would consider scary, even then. Right. Deborah, by the way, was um, trained as a social worker, and I learned so much from her in that month. She was a wonderful person. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so north of uh, Chicago, uh, uh, there, the interstate split in two ways. One went straight up north and then west, and the other went northwest toward Madison, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And she stood on, on, on that road, and I stood on the other, and we had our thumbs out, and she gets a ride. And she gets in the front, and I run over and get in the back. And the guy who's driving, who's about 27 years old, looks at me with fear. And he grips the uh, steering wheel with white knuckles. And Deborah says, hi, you know, my name's Deborah. This is my boyfriend, Brooke. Uh, What's your name? And the guy doesn't say anything. And she tries a few more times, and he's just completely stiff. And then finally she goes, okay, this is getting weird. You know, like, how's this going to work? I mean, I mean, like, are you going to tell us where we're going? You know, who you are, what's going on? Uh, Because if not, let's get out here. And the guy goes, okay, well, here's the thing. I'm scared. I was going to pick just you up and that you would trade sex for a ride. But now that this guy got in the back, I'm thinking you're just a bait and you're going to beat me up and steal my car, you know, and hurt Mm -hmm. me. And so when I hear that, you know, I'm in the back seat. I get angry. It's like, you know, like, how dare you? But Deborah reaches over and she like taps me on the shoulder to say, as if to say, you know, I got this. And she just says to this guy, she goes, you know, that's really interesting. So just to be clear, you thought that I would be willing to trade sex for a ride. So take a look at me. And he does. So do you think that if I were interested in doing that, I couldn't just like have sex with as a prostitute and get money and then fly to where I want to go? Mm-hmm. She goes, yeah, yeah, I could see that. And she goes, okay. So now if I were inclined to trade sex for a ride, how do you think that would, if, how would that be if you were me? And she goes, wow, I, 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 that w- his face drops. He goes, like, that would be horrible. And she goes, yeah. Now, if it's horrible for me, how would that be for you? <laughs> and he's, like, on the verge of tears. He'd say, like, it would be awful. And he goes, okay, so just to be clear, have you ever done this? And he goes, no, actually, I drive the big rigs, you know, 18-wheelers, and we're not allowed to pick up hitchhikers. You're the first hitchhiker I've ever picked up. He goes, okay, so if uh, – do you – does this actually even happen? And he says, well, I don't know. You know, I hear stories. She goes, well, would you want it to happen? And at this point, he's, like, already traumatized by the thought of – of, you know, he he's, he's she's already framed it as like if he were to try to do that, that would be rape, and he's not a rapist, right? He's that's not, and so he's like, no. He, she, and so Deborah goes, okay, so let's not do that. 
let me start again. My name's Deborah. This is Brock. What's your name? And he completely opened up. And uh, it was so cute. We, we were going through Madison, Wisconsin. And he says, you know, I, I, I don't know any. You're the first people I've met who are college students. And he, and he took us. He wanted us to go to a, 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 um, like a lunch place in Madison where students hang out. And he spent all his time listening to them. You know, he came out, he's, he's laughing hysterically. He says, you know, I thought everybody would be talking like chemistry and physics and philosophy, but they're all just bullshitting. <laughs> right. And we ended up spending five days with him and his, and his parents at a lake in, in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just a wonderful time. Now, so what is it at the key of this, right? Deborah trusted him. Right. Okay. She was tr- she was following my dad's advice. She trusted him until he proved untrustworthy, and he didn't. He proved entirely trustworthy. Afterwards, I asked, you know, what was your impression of him? And he says, you know, my diagnosis is that he's a virgin. Oh, you wow. know that he just doesn't, un- you know, that he was hoping to have a sexual experience by picking somebody up, uh-huh. but in in our interactions, he he just just like he didn't know how to deal with college students because he didn't know any, he was probably just didn't know how to interact with females. Right. So by the way, my dad, uh, that had a profound effect on me when I was five, when my dad saying, you know, trust people, you can trust people until they prove untrustworthy. Um, uh, after my dad died, we found on his computer a document called Stories for My, Chil- my Grandchildren, and he had 137 titles in the table of the contents, but only 32 that he had completed. And the very first one was about how when he was a child of age four or so, um, a, a uh, child molester had tried raping him and failed and, and tried killing him by forcing him down the um, – incinerator shoot in a building and he managed to fight it off and he was quite traumatized that by that as a young man didn't you know back then it wasn't a therapy sort of thing but it was something that he obsessed about and then at at around age 11 or 12 he had decided to make a policy decision to trust people until they proved untrustworthy because of that incident he had been not trusting people and, right. and that was keeping him from making close connections, right? And so all on his own as a, as a young man, he had decided that first to make that policy, not to be trust people blindly, mm-hmm. but treat them as if they had good intentions until they actually deliver evidence that they don't. Just don't let your imagination hijack your humanity. I know, but this person did abuse him, did put him in trauma. Yeah. So how, how did he get past that? He just, well. He just decided I, I, that not everybody in the world is him, that it's holding me back from other relationships, that they're not going to harm me. Is that what right. he decided? Well, I don't know. I mean, I didn't find out this story until after he died. So right. I can't even talk to him about it. Right. But I, I do remember reading a, an academic article in which they were trying to figure out who is it that's more likely to be the victim of a fraud, 
somebody who's who starts out being trusting until mm -hmm. they prove untrustworthy. They're the other way around. And it turns out that the people who are untrusting mm -hmm. are more likely to be victims of a fraud. And the, and the way you can think of that is imagine that the untrusting person built a, 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 a moat and a wall around themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So to swim the moat and climb the wall is a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And who wants to do that? You know, it's just like, ugh. You know, I, I'd much rather somebody who's got the front door open, right? right? And so the people who have the front door open interact with a lot of people, and they develop judgment. They develop, they learn to see who is the con artist, who's, who, who's selfish, and whatever, but they will start out with the assumption of good intentions, and they give people the benefit of the doubt, but they're happy to cut people off and remove them from their lives. Whereas the person who builds the moat and the wall, that person hasn't gotten rid of their need for human connection, right? Yeah. <clears throat> they still have the need. And so the con artist comes along and says, there's, there's gold on the other side of that wall. It's worth it for me to earn their trust. So the con artist, the con does not mean convict, which is what I thought when I was young. It means confidence game, which is where you get them to trust you by you trusting them. Hmm. So in a con, usually what happens is you'll say, you know, I trust you. Uh, let me give you this money. You hold on to it uh, for some, you know, so here's something of value. Mm -hmm. And then they say, then, then the victim who's looking for connection, finds somebody that's trusting of them. Hmm. And then at some future point, they ask them to reciprocate. Oh, could you co-sign this loan with, for me? And then they abscond with the money, right? Right. And so it turns out that, that again, I'm not a scientist. I'm not even an academic, so do your own research. But uh, it's been my experience that my dad's advice was good advice. So now, now, I take a little bit of a hybrid approach to your dad's advice. I'm not on the opposite extreme, meaning that I am trusting and I am open-minded and I try to judge the situation and the person according to the circumstances. But I take Reagan's approach, which is his famous line was, trust but, trust verify. but verify. So, you know, he used that line because the air traffic controllers, I think it was Los Angeles, was giving him all kinds of headaches and they wanted to go on strike and they wanted this demand and that demand. And he goes, no, you're putting federal, um, you know, our federal people in jeopardy, not to mention our passengers in jeopardy by you guys walking off the job. Everybody better show up tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, otherwise I'm firing you. And so they got with the program. He goes, we can negotiate offline, but walking off isn't the way to do this, to put our passengers in jeopardy. So I kind of like the hybrid approach. That's what works for me, trust but verify. Yes, I, I'm not going to trust too. everybody just for whatever reason. I mean, I, I assess the situation first. I mean, these days you get the, your your policy tested, or at least I do, like five, six times a day with scam phone calls. I mean, my telephone, um, if it's ringing, it, there's about a one in six chance it's somebody I know, right? And it's a yeah. five in six chance it's some robocall or some scam, right? So I'm not, um, uh, you know, that's right. I mean, you want to be, 
Okay, so so now what is the analog between hitchhiking and something today? What's a modern version? And now the way you you talked about hitchhiking is a good way to meet girls and talk to them. Well, I would say this: it's mm-hmm. hitchhiking is not a way to find a date, no. even then. It's no, not. It's, it's a great form of practice, though, which is what I advocate in my book. Right. That that you need to pra- I tell my men you need to practice with ten women a day. Um, it could be you know the girl at the gas station, could be at the market, could be at the cleaners. You know, you're picking up milk, like whatever it is. And I said actually to practice on girls that you don't want to date because it makes it easier. The whole thing is to practice, practice, practice. That way, when you're practicing this for a month or two, then you can graduate to doing this with a girl that you might want to date. So, you know, the the first few months, if you do it with the girl that you don't want to date, big who cares? It's like, you know, you're just doing it for the practice, not because you're going to get your feelings hurt because she said no or didn't respond. I I agree. And I, I would make a little bit of a tweak on that. I would recommend people just practice talking to people and caring about them, right? And yeah, so that, so in any if, situation. It, right. So like just – I wouldn't give somebody advice – necessarily practice with 10 girls a day because first of all especially under lockdown where are you going to find 10 girls a day right but (laughs) um but if it's about just girls all you care about is learning how to talk to girls yeah then in a way what you're doing is you're snubbing guys right yeah and and so a girl who notices that you're sort of like really interested in them, when you're not interested in any other guys in the room, that it's kind of clear what you're after, right? So yeah. I think that the, the value would be, for me at least, it mm-hmm. was practicing just talking. And when you're, when you're hitchhiking in those days, you were about um, uh, you know, about 95% of the people who picked you up about 90% were males, and about 5% were couples, and about 5% were single females, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so it, it was good practice just talking to people. Right. Now, um, I shouldn't say that. It's probably about 20% either couples or families. Okay, so there is a modern equivalent I discovered in 2006. It was a, a, there's a website called Couchsurfing. Wow. And okay. I don't know if you've heard of it, but Couchsurfing no. is an organization of people who host you when when you travel. And uh, and it's, it's like VR, a, VRBO without the payment. Droid by people who come to believe that, right? And so it it was started in in the early 2000s by a guy named Casey Fenton, who. Um, bought like a $65 round trip ticket to Iceland and then discovered that um, hotels were like 200 bucks a night. So he found the uh, 1500 email addresses of that ended dot is and just spammed them all who has a couch I could sleep on. Mm-hmm. And dozens of people just responded. Sure. I got a couch. Wow. Feel free. Right. And so he started interviewing them via email and creating profiles. And so he selected somebody and then everybody else said, whoa, you're not going to come stay with us? I mean, we've already built a relationship. If you're not going to stay with us, send somebody else. Wow. Right? 
And so it, when I joined in 2006, it was about 120,000 members, and it was just phenomenal. And I'll send you a link that you could share with people it, it's, yeah. it's about what I loved about couchsurfing. And it was a community that took communal responsibility for everyone's safety. It has, it has been destroyed, at least the thing I was used to, was destroyed um, by Airbnb because it's now framed as free Airbnb, which it isn't. It's a community of people who take shared responsibility for each other's safety. Okay, and uh, now... Explain that. What do you mean uh, collective responsibility for their safety? What, what does that mean? Well... For, when, the, for the visitor's safety or for the homeowner's safety? Well, both people are at risk. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there, there's a book called uh, Here Comes Everybody by a guy named um, Clay Shirky. And it's, a, it's about um, creating community. And as I recall, what he said is that a, uh, in a good community has a promise and there's something at, at stake. In other words, there's, you're risking something. So when you're hitchhiking, both you – the hitchhiker and the person picking you up are need to trust each other. They're, you're putting at yourself at risk. Both of you are putting yourself at risk, um, ostensibly needlessly. Mm-hmm. Right? Similarly, if you host somebody in your house, both the host is putting themselves at risk to a stranger, but so is that stranger. Sure. Right? You're both putting yourself at risk. Now, you mentioned the airlines. Right. I used to work for American Airlines. Oh, wow. And um, in operations research. And I have hold the airline industry in profound respect. And the reason is because of what happened at orientation with HR. It was an entire day, you know, learning about the rules and procedures and all of that. And then at the very end, in a sort of ritual, he takes out this little lapel pin and he hands it to me mm-hmm. and he says, we want you to wear this with pride. It's the American Airlines Eagle with the double sure. A. Mm-hmm. And he says, I want you to wear this with pride. And I go to reach it and he doesn't let go. Uh. So I'm, uh, and he says, there's just one thing you have to understand. There's one thing we value more than everything else in the world. It's more important than profits it's more important than your career. It's more important than this company. And that one thing is passenger safety. He says what that means is, for example, when you're on an airplane and the flight attendant is giving the safety demonstration, even if you've seen it a hundred times, you will pay care, careful attention. You will model good behavior for everyone around you. And if your flight attendant ever tells you to do something or to stop doing something, that is a direct order from a commanding officer, and we don't care whether you are the CEO of this firm, if they write you up for failing to follow uh, an order or for distracting them from their duties, you will be summarily uh, fired without hearing. Am I making myself clear? Hmm. And I was like, Perfectly. 
And then he releases it and says, okay, wear that with pride. And so, and in fact, about six months later, there was some guy in our office who's a real jerk. You know, what we used to call a cad. Yeah. Right. And, you know, he's, he, he's not somebody you could accuse of being like a rapist, but he was just like, you know, stupid or, or you know, whatever, annoying. Yeah. Anyway, he, he got re- written up by a flight attendant on the weekend for just being that, a distraction. And he was uh, let go Monday morning. Hmm. <clears throat> um, so, so couch surfing in its earliest days, the members had this profound sense that like if everybody could – there were two ways that you could uh, – triangulated a person's character. The first way was that uh, you could give each other references and those references could be positive, neutral, or negative, and you, and, and you don't have control over having a negative reference on your profile. And that was, um, they pre- preceded um, Airbnb and Airbnb has the same sort of thing. Uh, and then the third, uh, the second thing was called you could be vouched for and to be vouched for, you could only be vouched for somebody um, who is either one of the founders or somebody they have vouched for. And you have to be vouched for by three people before you can vouch for anyone. So there's a direct, the vouching system had a direct link to the origin story of the entire thing. And if I vouch for you, I can never unvouch you for you means I am staking my reputation on your behavior. So wow. if you treat somebody poorly, it reflects on me. And so if I vouch for you, I can't unvouch you. The only thing I can do is change my reference, say the negative, saying you have betrayed my trust. Right? So I, I thought it was a beautiful system and, and it worked very well. But later it was sort of destroyed in that incarnation. There's a new carnation that's coming up that's called Couchers, C-O-U-C-H-E-R-S dot org, that's started by a guy from um, Finland, I believe, and another, or, and another guy from Australia. And they both moved to New York about six months ago to work on building this together. So both of those organizations have a strict policy that it's not allowed to be used as a dating site, right? So if, if you treat, if you are only talking to girls and you, and you meet them and it's clear that you're just trying to pick them up, you will get negative references. Mm-hmm. Said, I've met people who've met, fallen in love and, and started families because what it does is it sort of requires authenticity and it's, there's a mechanism for triangulation. There's no rule against falling in love with somebody you meet. So, so as, a, as a place, um, that would be a good place, I think. Both Cal, cultures and, and couchsurfing may be good places in which to practice being a good person. Mm. Being a good person is one of the most attractive things a person can be. 
Yeah, definitely. But wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Yep. In fact, my, my show from a few days ago, I did the topic was how to be likable. So absolutely, it's it's a it's a personality trait that's in high regard. Absolutely, well, that's true. Although I make a distinction between likability and goodness, right? So, mm-hmm. in fact, there there's a there's a meme: good is not nice. The difference between being nice and good is that nice people, the metric is what other people think of them. For yeah. good people, the metric is doing the right thing. And there are times when doing the right thing makes you unlikable. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so I, I argue in favor of good over nice. I'm not saying you should, you know, some people will then treat that as licensed to be mean or nasty or, you know, but that's missing the whole point. You know, if you can be nice and good, and be both. But right. if you have to choose between, you know, if you look at how uh, bad behavior, um, um, I met a woman who headed the uh, placement, a career office for a, a university. And she wrote to the president and said, um, I um uh, feel bad because for three years now I have not placed a single graduate of our early childhood education program. This was in 2006. Uh-huh. It says, and I feel like I need to disclose this fact because all these kids are graduating with lots of debt and no job. You know, they go back to the waitressing job they had in the high school. And the president wrote back and said, um, Absolutely not. Don't disclose that and stop collecting the data so you can claim you don't know. Okay. So I asked her, what did you do? And she said, oh, and and the president said, you can't do that because what am I going to do with the department? Because then the kids won't take the course and I have a whole department, right? I have tenured Mm -hmm. professors I have to pay to teach a thing for which there's no demand. Mm -hmm. So... So I asked this woman, what did you do? And she says, well, what could I do? You know, I'm, I did what he told me to do. And, um, you know, I stopped collecting the data. and I didn't tell anyone. I'm telling you in confidence, which I didn't agree to, to keeping that confidential. And it, uh, so she was not being good, right? The good thing to do would be, I don't know, forward the correspondence to the New York Times. Yeah. Because the president was being evil. And and so most people uh, inadvertently do bad things. The, most people who do bad things are trying to be nice. They don't want to hurt their fellow faculty members who they have more of an affinity toward than the students who come and go. Although this woman said she realized in that moment that she was not there for the students. The, student, the, the school was not there for the students. The students were there for the school. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so I, and, and people, in the long run, I think people are more uh, attracted to good people than, than nice people. Because you could see through like the glad hander the you know the the guy 
again, as I say, I, I'm not saying you should be not nice. I'm saying that below nice should be a moral foundation that that respects, that pursues good. Gotcha. I wanted to share with you um, my experience of putting yourself in a situation that makes you a little bit uncomfortable or a lot uncomfortable at first, but it's also an opportunity to put yourself out there and learn how to communicate and learn how to listen and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So what I did, because I was painfully shy until age 30, and I got sick and tired of being so shy that I wanted to break out of that shell. So what I did is I joined a networking group. And in this group, we had to stand up in front of our group members, it was about 30 people in the room, and sell and pitch our product or service or whatever it was. And every week you had to come up with a new pitch, you know, even though you're selling the same thing. And it was, you know, a situation where you got over your stage fright and you really had to listen. And even as an audience member, you had to listen in order to ask the right questions about the product or service or whatever. Anyway, it was a terrific way to to interact with people. So I would say use that as well. Yeah. Uh, so what product were you selling? Or, or is this like the exercise yeah, where, here, sell me this yeah. pen kind of thing? Well, you could you could do that do it for that too, but at the time I was a mortgage broker, so I was selling home loans. So you know, come to me when you're purchasing a home, or when if you want to do a refinance, and here's the reason why. And you had five or ten minutes every week to get up and do your your spiel. And so you had to make it engaging where the people were responding to you because if they weren't responding to you, they probably weren't going to be a future customer or refer you a future customer. So it was an opportunity to really engage with those in the quote unquote, those in the audience. So right. So I if I I was also transformed by an experience um not in a networking group, but an actual sales class. So in, in, when I was 30, I was unemployed. It was um, uh, 1982, and we were in a recession. It was actually more, had higher unemployment than we did after 2008. And I was unemployed computer programmer at, for six months, and I couldn't, and somebody said, you need to learn how to sell. Now, at that time, um, what I would say is that the, my opinion of salesmen was that the only difference between pond scum and a salesman is the pond. Yeah. So I took this class that was for sales, specifically for computer consultants, how to sell themselves. And it was taught by this 77-year-old man named Jules Marine, who was an retired insurance salesman. So he walks in the room and I was, every, we all start rolling our eyes. Oh shit, you know, not this. And he spends the first half an hour, there are like maybe 50 of us. And he asks each of us, why are you here? And almost everybody has the same answer, but he goes on from person to person. He gets to this one guy who's in his late twenties and he says, I'm here to learn how to bend people to my will. Oh boy. And Joel says, well, that's interesting. What does that mean? And he says, well, I want people to do what I want them to do. And he goes, <laughs> okay, what about what they want? He says, I don't care what other people want. I know oh what I God. want. 
Oh, my goodness. And so he says, okay, that's fine. And then he goes around to everybody else. And then he comes back to um, to uh, that one guy. And he says, you know, you had a, the most different answer from everybody else. What's your name? And the guy tells him the name. And, and Jules pulls out his checkbook and he says, I am refunding your money. Wow, I love that. You do not meet the minimum moral and ethical standards to be in my class. Hands him the check and says, now leave. Get the heck out. Wow. <laughs> and, that's and this an guy's awesome like, story. Right. He goes like, what are you talking about? You know, I, I wrote three hours to be here. I paid two months ago. My money's as good as anybody's money. I want to be here. And Joel says, yeah, that's what you want, but it's not what I want. Now leave. And he throws him out of the classroom, locks the door, comes back and he says, people have needs and people have wants. And most people barely have a concept of some of the things that they want, and they have no idea what they truly need. So your job is to help people figure out what they really need. Right. And then help them. Or, or from the famous book, Think and Grow Rich, you know, if you help one person, they will find a way to reciprocate, and then they will in turn help you back. So yeah. try, try well, to initially come from a place of helping the other person. Well, okay, but that's not what he said. I mean, he did talk later on about um, uh, uh, not Earl Nightingale. Um, Thinking Grow Rich is Napoleon Hill, right? So he yeah. didn't mention Napoleon Hill. Yeah. But that's not what he said. <laughs> what he said was people have um, – you know, wants and needs. People barely know what they want sometimes, and they have no idea what you need. You said what you, what your job is to help people identify what they truly need, then want. Right. And then once their needs and desires are in alignment, you need to get them to act because most people don't even act on their true needs. Mm-hmm. And then your job is to deliver to their needs. And if you do that, you will be doing noble work. And life is too short to do anything but noble work. Right? I love that thought. Right. Brooke, so I'm going to have to, sure. if, you have, if you want to just wrap up that one sentence, I, I do have a caller on the line that I want to get to. But oh, absolutely. We, we, can, we can circle back to this when, sure thing. when, if the, you have a when caller, the caller's done. So let's bring call. him on. Um, caller, uh, I'm going to patch you in. 6606. Just give us a second here. Mm-hmm. Hello, caller. Yeah, you um, got please me. Let us know you your, got me. Please you're, let us know your first name and what city Joe. What city you're calling from, please. Joe, yes. Oh. And what city, please? Yeah, from Montana. Montana. All right, yeah, Joe, all right. do you have a question yeah. or comment? And thank you, by the way. I'm sorry I didn't get, you, get your call last week or whenever it was, but thanks again for calling <laughs> That's now. Okay. So go ahead, please. No problem. Um, I don't know if for the caller is a guest. I don't want to interrupt it if it is a guest, but if it's not, then I want to ask you a question. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. One time I called you about, I think it was last year, it was about a few months ago, and you had written a book, and your contention was that any guy could get any girl. So I, I gave yeah. you a scenario, and you said, yes, that, even that's possible. So what I, mm-hmm. my question is, what I'd like to see on your show, because what you were uh, selling, since this is apparently a sales class today, uh, 
was hope. And I'd like to know if you have any anybody who's reviewed your book or anybody who's used your book. And if you have, I'd like to have I'd like to have them on your show so that you'd actually have some live testimonials because that would be extremely okay. interesting. Oh, that's a really really good idea. Yeah, I mean I do. I interviewed twenty thousand men. Um, in order to write the book, I, I combined that information with 10 years of academic research uh, from my degree from UCLA in psychology. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I have reviews on Amazon, but I love your idea. Why not make it live? So, yeah, let me see if I can round that up and, and make that a show. That's an excellent suggestion. Love that. May I ask a question about right? Montana? Well, anyway, you get a chance. Joe, this is Brooke. Go ahead, Brooke. Joe, anywhere near Manhattan, Montana? No, I don't you know, really talk about. You know, you know I, I, um, I'm in Butte, I'm, but I don't talk about anything other than my philosophies on Block Talk Radio. Okay, yeah, that's fine. That's that's uh, absolutely fine. I'm just, you know, earlier I was talking about hitchhiking across country, and Manhattan is one of those places where we pulled off the road and. Slept under okay. the stars. Anyway. <laughs> so right. I have a soft spot for Montana. <laughs> yeah, well, everybody okay. who goes there does, so you're not the only one. So, yeah, so okay. getting back to your particular book and um, the sales lessons, yeah, because that would absolutely add to your credibility if you actually have live people who will give live testimonials about the usage of your book to do what mm-hmm. you contend they can do. And I, for one, would be absolutely interested in listening. <laughs> so that's all I, I wanted to say for today. <laughs> I love that idea, and I will make that happen. I will make that happen. I have people who have been following me for years. So, yes, um, if that would help you, I'm going to make that happen. So I could certainly Not give a myself, testimonial but anybody to else who. Um, Oh, have you? Have you used the book? No. I'm, as I say, I'm 69 oh. years old. At the time, last time I was in the market for for a, a date was uh, maybe before Linda was born. I don't know. But what I was telling the story about taking a sales class from this guy, Jules Marine, who said, you know, life is too short to do anything but noble work. Right. So I could finish how he his advice for how to find a date, find a woman, and, and which I did, and it worked. So I could give a testimonial to the thing I just talked about, if you want to hear that. Hello? Well, I think, I, think, I think we were talking about sales in general. We didn't really complete that thought, Joe. Right. That's but right. In, in my estimation, you get people who might be in a field that they think it has nothing to do with sales. Maybe they're an engineer, maybe they're a firefighter, maybe they're whatever. But in my view, everything is sales, everything. Even if you're like a college professor, guess what? You gotta go to your department head and say, hey, I need a grant to do this study. I need $10,000 or $15,000. You have to ask things of other people so in that sense whether it's winning over a girl or winning over your boss or a ceo when you're trying to make the sale close the sale it's all sales (laughs) so if you keep that in mind 
And like um, Brooke was saying, try to come from a place of how your interaction with this person can benefit them. Like what do they really need? And if you can somehow, let's say they need an introduction or they need, you know, somebody to work overtime or like whatever it is, if you can benefit them, they will be more apt to help you on whatever your request is. So it's all one big sales job. And Joe, I wrote that book because I was in sales. And I discovered a technique. It was my job to sell our product and services to CEOs. So first of all, how do you even get through to a CEO? I mean, you've got layers and layers of people. You've got the executive secretary and everybody on down the line. Nobody wants you to get through to the CEO. But if you finally get through to the CEO, how are you going to win him or her over to sell your product or services? So I discovered a formula that all CEOs want six things for their businesses one of six things. So if you hit upon what that one thing is, you've got the sale. So for one um, one CEO, his hot button might be, you know, he wants to sell more. For the next one, he might, you know, hate attrition. He, ha- he hates training new, new hires for 90 days and then they quit because they don't like it or whatever. Um, you know, The next guy, he's interested in stealing. He wants to cut down on the stealing. Why are they stealing? Put systems in place to prevent the stealing from happening. So whatever it is, there are only six. And as a salesperson, I figured out if I can somehow in the conversation get him or her to reveal what his or her hot button is, I got the sale. So when I wrote my book, I thought, you know what? there must be core drives for all kinds of human behavior. I mean, I was using it for a CEO, but I thought, you know what? I'm going to do my research and I'm going to pull back the dating scenario to 10,000 years ago. And how did the caveman date? How was it back then? And has it changed from then till now? And so what I discovered um, was that women have four top core drives. And if you can Mm -hmm. meet those core drives, it's my contention that you can win over any woman, anywhere, anytime, doesn't matter race, color, creed, religion, geography, like none of that matters because these are inherent traits that all women have. And that's what what the book is about. Can you say it or do we have to? Yeah, no, confidence is the absolute number one trait. Um, you know, they need confidence like they need air. And the reason why that is is because, in general, Mother Nature has made men bigger, better, stronger, faster for a reason. And the reason is to help protect the women and children, get them out of danger. So maybe there's a, a weather event like a, a flood or an av- avalanche, hurricane, like whatever it is, a fire, you know, um, or maybe it's an animal. Maybe there's a big bear or lion or somebody that's attacking the village or what have you. So they look from a biological point of view, they look up to men to help them get out of danger and the children get out of danger. So confidence is number one. And then, you know, you extrapolate that to today's modern world. Well, you know, we don't have to fight bears 
in general, but there are other ways that the man can demonstrate confidence. And I spend the better part of the first part of the book teaching men how to have confidence. And it has nothing to do with with women. You can't practice on women. You've got to practice in other areas. Other areas would be your job, your hobbies, your passion, like other areas, like learn it there first. And then when you're with women, it just naturally oozes out of you. You naturally already have the confidence. You were talking about so that, that the last time we talked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So confidence is number mm-hmm. one. Number two is connect with her. And again, I learned this in business, but what that means is find something in common to talk about. So if you're at a bar or restaurant or whatever, just look around the room first before you open your mouth and say, hey, um, have you heard this band before? Or, hey, have you, I see you're eating the onion rings. Are those good? Because I was looking at that on the menu. They look good to me. They, you know, they look pretty tasty. So find something in common to talk about because that commonality will draw her in. Number three is caring. You have to give a rip. If you don't give a rip about this person, it's not the right person. Put her back in the, the ocean and let her swim away. Find somebody that you care about, you want to learn more about, right? And then number four is um, consistency. Sometimes I call this character. Walk the walk, talk the talk, be a legit person, um, because that's also highly attractive to a woman because it fits into the confidence thing. Be a person of character. So, okay. as a, so can I give a testimonial? Yeah. To the value of those things, even though it's not because I read the book. As I said, you know, I'm, you, you are describing things that are just true, and so you don't have to read the book for it for you to have experiences of it being true. That you're you're providing uh, the book serves as a shorthand to help yeah. you not have to do the twenty thousand interviews. What is that mumbling noise I hear in the background? Joe, is that on your end? What? Are you yeah. hearing something um, static? Yeah, maybe okay. maybe you Please could well. mute your mic, your mic when you're not talking. I'm gonna but, yeah, I'm gonna mute myself now. Good. Yeah, that was it. So um, thank you. So I could. So at by, the time. By the way, by the way, Brooke is a new friend. That's probably why he hasn't read the book yet. But we'll make that. I uh, have it off air. Well, <laughs> another thing I have to do is even though I have you're to... married for 35 years, there's still I have a lot of married people that that buy the book and they're they're like, wow, I learned a whole ton of information here that I can apply to business. I can apply to other females' interpersonal skills with other females being that that one female that I hate that that goes to the family barbecue every summer. I don't get along with her, so I can apply your book, what I learned in your book, to her. Or your next-door neighbor, the pesky next-door neighbor that's always in your business. So it's not, you know, yes, I call it for dating and relationships, but it's not just for the dating man. That's right. We just have to, she and I have to have a conversation about why I'm reading the book before she sees me (laughs) reading it, right? So it's like, what are you doing here? So. Uh, so Jules, so he starts the day by saying, your job is to do noble work, right? So the things you were talking about, right? You want to find someone that you're going to care about, and you're going to help them meet their needs. And mm-hmm. for women are biologically predisposed 
from evolution, from the caveman days, to need to feel safe, right? Yep. And, and, and so one way them seeing you feeling confident makes them feel safe. But that confidence has to be well-earned. Your goal is to make them feel safe, not to project the, the impression you're you're safe and then and then you're going to bolt at the first sign of trouble right you you actually and that speaks to the last piece which is character you have to be that person it's not good enough to appear to be that person so right so now at that time not only was i unemployed i'd broken up with a girlfriend i'd lived with for five years mm-hmm. so i would say my self-esteem was kind of in the toilet i was at, you know i i i felt like you know, I wasn't going to be attractive to somebody. So by the end of the day, you know, then we, what we learned were, were fairly typical sales techniques, like, you know, alternative choice. Would you like this or that? Not, do you want this or not? Right. Or the Benjamin Franklin clothes or a bunch of things. Right. Um, however, it was all in the context of helping people figure out what they needed and meet and deliver to their needs. Mm-hmm. Okay. So at the end, he said, now, I'm going to suggest something about how to get what you want. You need to start by knowing what you want. So write down in as short as, as few words as possible what you want while being as specific as possible. And then write, and don't make it more than three things that you want. And then write those things on a small piece of paper and tape them to a mirror in your bathroom. And look at it every day when you brush your teeth. And then don't think about what you want for the rest of the day. Instead, go into the world and do good work. Mm -hmm. That's it. Right. Yeah. He says the goal and and thinking grow rich. That might have been where he got it from, from right. Napoleon Hill. Right. He says you want your unconscious mind to know what you want, so that it'll recognize it when it sees it. But you don't want to spend your day thinking about you not having what you want. You want to spend your day thinking about what other people need and how you can best meet their needs. And that's it. Right. Mm-hmm. So I th- went home and I thought about it and meditated, and I, I wrote two things. I said, I want to find a woman to love, marry, and have children with, and I want to make um, $75,000 in the year after next. And the reason was because in the prior year when I'd been un- unemployed, when I had been employed, I'd made $25,000, and now I was unemployed. So what I wanted to do, very ambitious, is I wanted to make times what I had made in my best year in, uh, in two years from now. Mm-hmm. And I wrote that, and I put it on my mirror, and I looked at it every day. And I didn't think about it. I went into the world, and I did good work. And then one day, a couple of years later, um, I looked at this thing and I read it and I said, I wonder when this is going to kick in. And then it hit me. I had been reading this every day and yet I was now engaged to be married to the woman I did marry and uh, who I loved. 
still love and have had children with. And in the, I had I had reached that milestone of how much money to make a year earlier than the the than <laughs> a year earlier than the deadline I'd set for myself. So the fact is, I had been looking at my goal and hadn't even processed the fact that I'd reached it. <laughs> right, because it was, was part of your subconscious. Phenomenal. Yeah, so I have your... a strong bias in favor of of that as a technique. I love that. Love that. That's a great thing. Are you still All there? All right. I, I'm still oh, wait, there. My speaker is muted. Why is that? Oh. Um, you hear me? I have to figure out how to. Uh-oh. You hear me or no? Hello. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Now I can. Yeah, for some reason, my, the, you know, someday computers will be ready for humans, you know. <laughs> but for some reason, my, my, my speaker just muted itself. Oh, dear. So, All right. I want to uh, thank Joe for calling, and I, w- I will definitely take your suggestion. I love it. So thanks for calling in. Um, to my listeners, if you've just joined us, you're currently listening to the Men's Advocate Show with me, your host, Linda Gross. We are talking today about the last time I had anxiety, things that trigger it, and things that can push you out of being an en- in an anxious state. Okay, you're on with my guest, Brooke Allen, and I want you to call in with any questions or comments on this topic. When we come back from the break, uh, Brooke, we're going to wrap things up. So any further topics that we have on anxiety and sales and hitchhiking and dating and all the fun things that we've talked about today, let's wrap it up in a nice little bow uh, when we come back from the break. By the way, 323-642-1677, or hit me up on the chat line. That chat line is right here on blogtalkradio.com, blogtalkradio.com forward slash DT Linda Gross forward slash DT Linda Gross. Catch you right back after the break. Hey guys, do you have a nagging problem that you just can't get a handle on? Now you can talk to an expert coach right in the privacy of your own home. Meet in person, over the phone, or with a free Skype call anywhere in the world. Linda is here to make it easy for you. Linda Gross has done years of academic research combined with interviewing over 20,000 men. Linda's expert advice gets you through tackling relationship issues, business goals, conflict resolution, and removing lifetime roadblocks that have kept you back, usually handled in four sessions or less. Realize the benefits now. Go to the Men's Advocate page slash coaching and you'll be on your way. That's themensadvocate.com slash coaching. Darn, maybe you missed part of this show. Maybe you're still at work during the show. Maybe you heard the show but would like to listen again. Your problems are easily solved. Listen to any and all of Linda's archived shows at your convenience. Just Google SoundCloud, The Men's Advocate. That's Google SoundCloud, The Men's Advocate. The on-demand library is also available on the TuneIn app. Subscribe now and please share with your friends. So, Linda, since you asked 
for to wrap this up. Mm-hmm. I wonder if I could do that um, by telling a story about uh, the difference between sympathy and empathy. Sure. And this is some this is something that I learned in sales class, um, but didn't. Um, it didn't really mean anything to me until uh, something significant happened to me and somebody else illustrated to me the difference. So what happened was I was in Japan in, in 1993 running a, a trading operation for uh, a, a, um, a, a large firm that you might know, and I lost my job. And so I went around uh, saying goodbye to people, and I got two sorts of reactions. One was people who were like really cheerful. Oh, you're going to do great. You're going to, you're, I'm sure you'll land on your feet. Um, let's, let me take you out for drinks. And then uh, I got a second reaction from people that where they looked more worried and scared than even I felt. Yeah. And they were like, just avoid me. They tried to stay away from me. And then uh, th- both those reactions were kind of, strange from my point of view. I mean, I didn't feel very good. I had a family. I didn't, you know, the U.S. was in recession in 93. I didn't know what was going to happen. Then there was this guy, um, Ted was his name. And uh, he saw me, he was visiting from the States. And he goes, Brooke, I know exactly what you're going through. I used to work at a large uh, um, investment bank an up or out kind of place. The day I thought I was going to be made partner, they said, we're an up or out kind of place and you're out. He says, I know exactly where you feel it. It's about three inches below your belly button. Is that right? And I said, yeah. And so he turned to an assistant, gave him his calendar for the day. And he says, I want you to reschedule the rest of the day. I'm spending it with Brooke. He takes me in a room and he says, You will find that two people react to you, and people react to you in two ways, and they're both dysfunctional. The first is they want you to cheer you up, and the reason is because they feel bad, and they don't like feeling bad because they're sympathetic. And sympathy means that you feel what another person feels or what you imagine they feel. It says mm-hmm. – <laughs> Think of sympathetic vibrations. When you pluck one string on a guitar, the other strings around it vibrate. That's called sympathy. Uh It's feeling what another person feels. He says, so one reaction is you feel bad. That makes me feel bad. Let's have a party to cheer ourselves up. He says, you don't need that. You need a new job. You have a family. You have kids. Then the other reaction is avoidance. Being around you makes me feel bad right when you get work. I'm confident, but I'm busy. I'm confident you'll do fine. I'm busy. Leave me alone. Mm -hmm. He says, that doesn't help you at all. He says, what you need is to identify the problem. The problem is you need a job. Then you need to identify people who can help you. Like me, for instance. He said, take out a notebook, get a pen, and he I'm going to fill your calendar between now and the day you leave Tokyo. Picks up the phone and he calls some guy. He's like, Frank, this is Ted. There's a guy you need to meet. His name's Brooke. He's leaving Tokyo at the end of the month. Trust me, you need to meet him tomorrow morning. Could you meet him for breakfast, coffee, lunch, or or, uh, 
afternoon coffee. Which is it? Okay, lunch. I'll, I'll give you his address. Hangs up. Brooke, you have a luncheon meeting. Calls this next guy and says, you know, whatever his name is, there's this guy you need to meet. Take my word. He's going to be in Otemachi at, at, uh, for lunch tomorrow. Would you like to meet him before then or after? Which is it? He filled my calendar. From that moment on, that feeling below the belly button just Mm -hmm. evaporated because I was doing the thing that needs to be done to solve the problem that I was actually facing, right? And, And the best way to feel confident that you could do something is by doing the thing that needs to be done, right? A lot of people think they need confidence first before they can pick up the phone. Whereas he, he just filled my calendar. And so uh, I think you called this the last time I felt anxiety. And, and I think that was because I, I told you this story. That was the last time I felt that anxiety about work, right? Mm. I felt anxiety. I mean, there are things that scare me. There are things that, and I can feel that. But that thing of just what is it? What's the thing that needs to be done? And then do it. It's it's extremely powerful. Like I say in my book, I have a line in there and it says, action cures depression. So anxiety is a form of depression. So when you say you filled up the calendar, that certainly is an awesome way to create action for yourself to put action in a positive light with things that are going to help you get to your end goal there. So by being inactive, sitting on the couch, playing video games all day long, you know, smoking a joint for hours on end, you know, it keeps you in a state of inaction, which is why you're still depressed. So there's another curious, um, well, interesting fact that came out of neuroscience but that I knew intuitively, and that is that the human brain is incapable of both being curious and anxious at the same time. And so when something comes along that makes you anxious, a good habituated response is, that's curious. I wonder why I feel that way. And yeah. then pursue the curiosity, and you'll find that you could switch back and forth. You can cycle between curiosity and anxiety, but you're not going to be able to maintain both states at the same time. I love that. That's a really good analogy. I love that. So it's almost like something that you're scared scared of. You know, try to look at it from a point of view of this is an opportunity for me to do something different with it. Maybe it's a little strange. Maybe I haven't experienced this feeling before. But instead of being afraid of it, instead of, you know, having the, the anxiety thing kick in, instead say this is an opportunity. Well, that's right. And so another thing where I, I learned that. The, I forget what Japanese or Chinese. The Chi- there's a Chinese, thing with regard right, to the symbol crisis. for this is the same. You know, the symbol for crisis is the same symbol as for opportunity. I think that's how it goes. Right. And yeah. I've heard that. I don't know if. I don't trust that if I Google it, it won't. I won't find that debugged <laughs> somewhere. Right. But 
the way I learned it was uh, in the the job I lost before uh, I became unemployed and had the sales class. That job was with a company that sold a computer uh, that uh, a twenty thousand dollar computer that, and we were put out of business. Mm-hmm by um, the announcement of the IBM PC. And when mm-hmm. IBM announced the PC, the company that manufactured the computer we used, they announced they were shutting down the next day because they couldn't compete right? mm-hmm. on price or reputation. And so we were a vendor, you know, what's called a systems integrator, and I could not sleep. And the first night I kept going to sleep with this statement in my head, which was like, this is horrible, this is horrible, this is horrible. And that's not the best mantra to keep in your head if you're trying to sleep, right? And that, so the next night I decided when that would happen, I would try to intentionally crowd out that statement with this question, which is how can this be a good thing? So that's a question, right? That's a statement of curiosity. How can this be a good thing? But I kept losing out, you know, how can this be a good thing? How can this be a good thing? And then another part of my brain would say, no, it's horrible. This is terrible. It can't be a good thing, right? right? The third night I managed to actually get to sleep just repeating, how can this be a good thing? And I woke up with the answer. And the answer is, now for the first time in my life, I can own my own computer. It was cheap enough that I could afford one myself. Ah. And so before then, what you want to, you know, capitalists want to own the means of production. And so there's two things that I needed. I to own. One was my brain, and then the other was a computer, which before the PC was so expensive, I had to work for somebody who had the capital to own a computer, right? Right. Whereas now I could own one myself, and it's like, oh my God. And so I have heretofore never failed to find a profound answer to the question of how can this be a good thing? In, in, it's, that's always succeeded at least by the third day, right? Hmm. Sometimes it doesn't work the first night or the second night, but if it doesn't work those two nights, it'll work on the third night. So far, Mm -hmm. whatever happens, how can this be a good thing? Which is just a statement of curiosity. Yeah. It's a, it's a reframe because when you look at it from this vantage point, it might be scarier or anxiety producing. But when you look at it from a different angle, it's like, oh, this is an opportunity or this is I can create something new with this that actually benefits me. That's right. Question is, right, reframe. So so here's a one of the things I tell say is that people seem to have a problem with problems. Problems aren't a problem. They're the spice of life. And as a friend of mine uh, who's um, uh, – he, he's a um, business consultant. Um, and what he said to me once was – he said, Brooke, you're such a problem solver. You don't even, under, you don't even see um, uh, the, what the process that you're going through. He says, but most people think a problem is a statement like, I can't find a girl. That's not a problem. That's a complaint, right? Yeah. 
And then if you ask them, that's a complaint, what's the problem? They may say, the problem is I don't have a girl, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's just a restatement of the complaint. (laughs) If you ask them, what do you want? And they say, well, I want a girl. That's fine. Yeah. It's right. But what's the problem? The problem is I don't have one. Well, that's it. That I want a girl is a desire. I don't have one as a complaint. A problem is a question that can possibly have an answer. So if the question is, I want to find a woman to love, marry, and have children with, which was the desire that I wrote Mm -hmm. on my mirror. Right. The question that goes with that is, how do I find a woman to love, marry, and have children with? Mm -hmm. Right. That's just, that's the question. Right. Mm -hmm. And then it possibly has an answer. It doesn't necessarily mean it has an answer. Now, how do I find a, 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 I want a unicorn. All right. Well, that's a complaint, but it's not something worth dwelling on because unicorns don't exist. Uh, I don't have a unicorn. You know, if you, if, if, if that becomes a horrible part of your life, you might consider psychotherapy because they don't exist. Mm-hmm. How do I find a unicorn? That's like the punchline to a joke. They don't exist, right? So, so you want to constrain your desires to things you, it's possible for you to have, right? You don't, because otherwise you're just, you know, tilting at windmills. You're pursuing the impossible, that's just too frustrating. So I, I think what happened in the case of my wife, the way I met her was that I was at a, um, a, a computer conference and I was sitting next to this lovely young woman and we were chatting, waiting for the 11 o'clock speaker. And about five minutes before 11, this, the, the woman who's the moderator comes in and says, you know, our, um, our, our speaker was canceled, and then she turns to Eve and, and me and says, are you guys planning on staying for the 12 o'clock talk? And we said, yeah. And she goes, okay, I have something else to do. You guys tell whoever comes in that this, this presentation's canceled. And then she leaves. Mm. Right? So even I talked for, for an hour. And I was smitten. Now, it's funny because um, I've told this story only over and over and over again. And recently somebody says, how dare that woman? She's the organizer. How, did she, she, how dare she impose on you? She's the one who should have stayed and told everybody that her speakers canceled out on her. And what does she mean she has something more important to do? She was scheduled to be there at that time, whereas you – You know, and it hadn't even occurred to me. But if that is what had occurred to me or had occurred to Eve, had we been the kind of people who are like, what are you talking about? You know, we're not going to stay here and do your work for you. If we'd been those kind of people, we wouldn't have met. We wouldn't have gotten to know each other. So it's like speaking to character. We were like, okay, we don't have anything else to do. We're happy to hang out here and talk. So, and tell people you've canceled the meeting. So you don't have to tell people you've canceled the meeting. Right. 
All right, Brooke, I do need to wrap up for the day. So if you have any final comments on how to pull somebody out of an anxiety state, we mentioned reframing, uh, maybe looking at it from a point of view as how, how can this outcome be a good thing. We mentioned putting yourself into situations like uh, the, the couchers that you were mentioning, putting yourself in a situation where you are interacting with people and you're kind of forced to learn how to converse and how to talk and how to listen. So all of these things are very positive things that we can do pull ourselves out of anxiety if there's a last comment because um, I do need to close the show but do you have a last comment on anxiety and how to pull yourself out of it no I don't have any um, but I'll stay up all night worrying about what I could have said <laughs> <laughs> well that'll be the topic of another show right because right. that's, that's the magic of podcasting here all right I want to thank my guest today Brooke Allen, you'll find him at brookeallen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-E-A-L-L-E-N.com. You don't have to remember it. I'll put the links uh, on all my social media. And if you want further um, information to see what he's up to, he's a writer and social entrepreneur, and you can find him there on his website, and I'm sure it'll lead you to his social media. So I want to thank our listeners today for uh, listening in. I really appreciate it. Let me know if you have a topic or guest that you would like to have me on the show, and I will make that happen. So until next time, you're listening to the Men's Advocate Show with me, your host, Linda Gross. We'll see you next week right here on Blog Talk Radio. Bye for now.